Hello, and welcome to Spacewalks Money Talks, a podcast where we talk about outer space business, technology, and policy. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Manfred von Ehrenfried, also known as Dutch, and we talk about the Artemis Lunar Program. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Manfred von Ehrenfried, also known as Dutch, uh, author of the Artemis Lunar Program, published by Springer and available May 2020, this month. Um, thank you for speaking with me. You bet. So first, uh, tell me about your uh, background in space. Well, um, I'm one of the original Space Task Group guys out of Langley. Uh, I started in 1961 uh, as a flight controller trainee under Gene Kranz and Chris Kraft and John Hodge and those those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, spent the rest of the Mercury program in, at Langley, uh, and then uh, everybody moved to... Uh, to Texas, of course, mm-hmm. and so uh, after the Mercury program, after uh, the last flight, uh, we all moved to, to Houston. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you stayed in in space since then, or I guess you 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 must have if you've written this book? But um... well, actually, I I spent uh, Mercury, Gemini, and early Apollo at Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, Worked uh, in the space station program office as a contractor in, in Washington for a while. Mm-hmm. Also went off into the nuclear world for about seven years. Mm-hmm. Wrote a book on that as well. Uh, and then, uh, so I haven't been actively involved as a contractor or as an employee uh, since about uh, 94-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I've been in the finance world since then. Oh, Okay. Um, I'm sure you still have writing, still writing on the side. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have pretty fascinating stories from uh, from the days you spent back there on those programs. Yes, indeed. I put a lot of those in the books mm-hmm. along the way. Okay. Um, so let's talk about this particular book. Um, I see it's divided into uh, four main sections: overview, uh, spacecraft landers, rovers, and payloads elements, and then um, NASA and commercial crew development. Um, tell me about uh, what's your approach in the book. Is it more technical, uh, a bit about business? How does how do you mix it up? Well, it's really uh, an overview in the sense of the program having started in 2017 and going to about 2030 or so. Mm-hmm. So it's really a status uh, of where stands, uh, you stand now. Like included all of the controversy about the uh, beginnings and the gateways and so forth, but uh, then later go into uh, enabling technologies and some conclusions about uh, how it relates to Mars or doesn't relate to Mars. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, wrote a book on Mars as well. But uh, it's really a sort of uh, like a reference book that people can use for the next many years. Mm-hmm on what is going on and and uh, what the uh, different elements and modules and so forth are. Mm-hmm. And it's some uh, conclusions and, and different things uh, that sort of substantiate the positions I take. It uh, goes into some explanations of some of the strange things about the program, like the, uh, the halo orbits and the Hall effect thrusters and and things like that, uh, solar electrics and 
and some uh, neat stuff that's going on technology-wise that should uh, facilitate not only this program but uh, uh, Mars, human Mars missions. It's quite a, a, a broad spectrum of uh, research on the site. So as far as the controversy about um, whether we should skip the moon and go to Mars or start it, start um, with the moon and then go on to Mars, have you always been on one side of the debate or have you um, adjusted your thinking in any way on that controversy? Well, a lot of the controversy is based on, first on the gateway mm-hmm. and then the controversy is related to the approach to uh, Selling Artemis as the wherewithal for supporting Mars missions. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of discussion in that in the book. You know, first on the gateway, which is still still kind of contention for many people. Uh, we actually got trapped into the position we're in because we uh, we don't have a super heavy lift launch vehicle, and so after they canceled the Saturn. We just don't have the, the capability to throw massive waste into lunar orbit so directly. So mm-hmm. the gateway is sort of uh, has been a result of not having that capability. We'll soon have it one of these days. But even the SLS block uh, 2 doesn't have uh, that kind of capability. So that's one aspect of controversy. Well, the second point, the second controversy is to what degree does. Uh, the Artemis program really support the, the Mars program. The question is, uh, do we go Mars direct or do we, do we use this, uh, gateway concept? And I think Bridenstine, uh, sort of sold it, uh, that we have to have the Artemis in order to have that capability, but you don't need to, uh, have our uh, gateway at all for, for Mars missions. I, I think what, what's happened is, is that uh, it's almost like the old, uh, if all you got is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Well, <laughs> what we have is um, uh, the ISS, and so the gateway looks like a mini ISS. And so we certainly know how to build those kind of modules and so forth, but there's absolutely nothing in the gateway, even the advanced gateways, that will ever go to Mars. Uh, even the Orion itself cannot go to Mars. Uh, not the not the 21 day Orion that we have now. So even the Orion will not be able to uh, go without being reconfigured, expanded, and so forth. Mm-hmm. The SLS, uh, uh, you know, where we really have many SLSs right now, we don't even have the, the great the Block Two super heavy lift vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be another 10 years before we have that. So. There's many people that say uh, go Mars direct and uh, use your use your orbital ISS for the test and check out of the modules and elements and so forth. So uh, we'll eventually have better launch vehicles than the SLS uh, uh, in the near future, but even that will be another many many years. Mm-hmm. So that's there's that controversy as well. Mm-hmm. I think what Bridenstein has done is he sold. He sold the Artemis program uh, using Mars as uh, as uh, the test bed uh, to help sell the program. But we're, we're going to have the Artemis as we see it now for at least a decade or so. We just uh, have a long way to go to get to a Mars capability. Mm-hmm. 
So what do you see as the benefits um, of the Artemis program? The, the scientists, uh, uh, the lunar scientists, are all up for it. Most everybody in the world is up for it from the standpoint of science. Mm. Uh, but the big, the big problem and the biggest advantage, I think, of Artemis is that you have to be able to process the regolith uh, to get water and ice and, and uh, water uh, to process into oxygen and fuels and and that that whole capability of ISU whatever they call it in situ utilization is the only way we're ever going to get to to Mars because NASA still keeps pushing this uh, conjunction class Mars mission which requires you to leave the crew on the surface for a year and a half, which is means you can't you can't possibly resupply that much uh, resources without having this the capability to process the regular. So that to me is the one of the biggest uh, uh, advantages of going back to the moon is uh, lear- learning how to do all that, and, and it's not as easy as people think. Away, well, you just uh, you get the ice. Uh, you just process it, and you just uh, get your oxygen, and you get your uh, hydrogen, and you make your fuel, and blah blah blah. It sounds like it's uh, real easy, but it's not. Hmm. Okay. So uh, that uh, that the scientists, on the other hand, the payloads, uh, the lunar surface payloads, is uh, is another big advantage. Uh, although we know how to make spectrometers and magnetometers and all these other sensors, uh, they're they're all directly applicable to, uh, to to Mars missions just as um, the robotics missions are today. So uh, the scientists will be quite happy with, with uh, getting to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about uh, going to the South Pole for because they think that the water ice is mostly there, uh, but uh, we can't go to the backside of the moon uh, like this like the Chinese have already done. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still need, you know, line of sight capabilities of somewhere, like the gateway here to Earth. Mm-hmm. So the place that they're going now, if you look at the moon, if you look at the full moon and look at the bottom of it, mm-hmm. that some of that part is uh, in constant daylight or close to the water sources. So that's why they're going there. Uh, but... Uh, uh, a lot of the ice, uh, water ice, is uh, on the backside in that Aiken uh, Basin. But uh, certainly the uh, the places that they're planning to go that are in direct uh, direct line of sight uh, will be a, a likely place to start. Mm-hmm. Now, this whole thing about sustainability is another problem. And you can't really have sustained uh, lunar base operations without the ability to, uh, you know, keep, keep going there. Uh, so right now they're talking about a year, year or two between Artemis flights. Hmm. Uh, so you, you won't really have sustainability until they were able to process that regolith to, you know, get some of the resources that they need to, without having to preposition them there. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be five, ten years, maybe even longer before we have, quote, sustainability. I'm speaking with Manfred von Ehrenfried, author of The Artemis Lunar Program. You can find more information at dutch-von-ehrenfried.com.
If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing the popularity of my podcast, and I'm grateful for any support you can give me. Please sign up for my newsletter at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Please post your comments and questions about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Spacewalks Money Talks or on YouTube at Spacewalks Money Talks. You can contact me directly on Twitter at SpacewalksMT and on Instagram at Spacewalks Money Talks. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. Why does the United States have um, such a problem overcoming the line of sight obstacle as far as getting to the far side of the moon um, with China having done it, but the U.S.? Is it just because of the communication satellite or? Well, the Chinese have got, you know, you go back to these Lagrange points where where the gateway is at Lagrange 1 and the Chinese have their, uh, their satellite is at L2. And so they can have their little uh, rovers transmitting directly back to L2, and then uh, um, they're having to go from there. But we would need to have either the Chinese play a role, uh, which they're not playing any role right now in our programs, to, mm-hmm. to use their L2 uh, satellite. You know, we could put one there as well. But right now they're all planning on this halo orbit, which is an L1. Okay. So you got you got to have a relay satellite uh, to get the data back to Earth. Mm-hmm. And is it that much more expensive or difficult to put that there than um, than all the you know we put tons of satellites up in space? Um, yeah, we're we're good at that for uh, low Earth orbits for sure, or you know, even high high orbits. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, for uh, sun synchronous or. Uh, Geosynchronous, mm-hmm. but uh, the the L one orbits. These are very strange orbits. So I put an appendix to try to explain these things. Mm-hmm. They're very large. You know, they're in like six, seven thousand mile orbits that move. They're sort of quasi stable. You you have to kind of keep keep it. Uh, uh, Resupplied, you know, reboosted a little bit, not as much uh, as uh, otherwise, but uh, so that that's a problem in itself. It takes uh, many days. I think it's seven days or something like that to get back to the moon and back. Uh, you know, with Apollo was three days mm-hmm. to Earth and back, but uh, from these rectilinear halo orbits, it's uh, it's longer. So that that's an operational problem for sure. Hmm. Okay. Um, so focusing on the Artemis program, um, you you've already mentioned some challenges and, and such. Um, but what other challenges, either in business, business rules, technology, or um, space policy, are you most concerned about, and why in regards to the Artemis program? Well, back to uh, uh, the mixture of budgetary things versus uh, uh, sequencing of things. Uh, right right now, uh, with the 
delays and everything, delays in the SLS and cost overruns and all that stuff. It, it sort of gets mixed up into not just pure which way do we go versus uh, well, how much money do we have and when can we go, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the technologies are extremely advanced now. There's there's all kinds of really neat, uh, super technology things that are even uh, here now or will soon be here now. My, what, some of my favorites are these uh, these uh, new, uh, new new power systems. Uh, the kilopower system is a new uranium powered system, which is many times larger than the uh, plutonium systems we have uh, now on Mars, like Curiosity, mm-hmm. which is not much more than a hundred watt light bulb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the kilowatt power system is operational and it's been tested and it's uh, it's ready to go. Um, the batteries are all changing. You know, we change batteries now on ISS, but even the batteries that are beyond uh, what we just replaced will be far more superior. Uh, a lot of new things going on in lithium batteries, not not the ones we have now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of new things going on in radiation protection on these uh, like these uh, new uh, nitrite nanotubes that are uh, that can be woven into fabrics that can uh, trap radiation uh, more effectively, and that's going to revolutionize things if that if that works. Um, there's a there's new communications technology, and here again, all this is related to policy. Um, new things that are related to the uh, uh, laser communications back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all kinds of new things on the regenerative fuel cells and, and, the, and the, even the solar power systems are changing drastically, much more efficient, much more, much more lighter, lighter. And, uh, these new, uh, small satellites like these CubeSats, uh, of which there's something like 16 of those, even on Artemis one mm-hmm. that are advancing all kinds of, uh, neat things. One of the things from a, an old guidance officer standpoint is that this uh, this uh, inertial guidance and uh, also this uh, guidance and navigation systems that are autonomous and, and are able to avoid uh, hazards automatically they're they're really really getting to be uh, something to behold mm-hmm. um, so policy policy will be inherently uh, coupled with uh, with the technologies uh, and so they're they're pretty well set up now on the next decade or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, not much is going to change policy-wise that is not uh, related more so to the capabilities that they have and the, comp- the problems that they have with SLS and you know Ryan and all the others. Uh, I'm really uh, excited about the technologies related to uh, the regolith processing. That is, uh, that's going to be... Uh, that's going to be a game changer, I think, because mm-hmm. because of what I said before about the you can't go to Mars without it. You know, some neat capabilities there. Is PNT an issue when um, operating on on the Moon? Is there any problems there? Well, there are certainly advances there. Uh, uh, I think I covered a little bit of that, but uh, maybe not as much as I should have. But uh, the atomic new atomic clocks are related to that. Mm-hmm. 
the navigation precision landing systems are they're trying to be totally autonomous. Uh, you think of the Armstrong trying to pilot the, the lunar module back with these eyeballs. Well, they're going to have not only eyeballs, but there are all kinds of, of uh, sensors that are looking out that are trying to process uh, the, um, you know, the speeds and the, the cross-range tracking and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so all of that, I think, will be in the new new landers, which are, you know, not even built yet, but uh, certainly you've got some, what, two or three designs going. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be easier than, uh, than uh, Apollo from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you couple all that together with the uh, deep space laser communications and atomic clocks and all kinds of other stuff that uh, I think that part of the of the game from a technology standpoint will be easier mm-hmm. than the, um, the the things that relate to sustainability, uh, like the regolith processing and and uh, life support systems. All the even the life support systems on the backpacks—they're all changed. The, the suits have all changed. Mm-hmm. You know, so the technology is really moving out in many many areas. Do you think that the that government contracts for these different aspects of the mission can keep up with the technological changes? Will they be able to adapt quickly enough if something new comes across over this, you know? Uh, well, the, uh, you know, NASA has really sponsored all this technology development in, in the industry, is, uh, as well as the NASA laboratories are cooperating on a, almost every uh, technology area mm-hmm. um, so the fact that NASA's being a little you know with their half of one percent budget is uh, mm-hmm. trying to you know uh, uh, sort of uh, reinforce the systems with the with the industry the industry is jumping on board to, to help with all that mm-hmm. they, they couldn't do it without without this uh, cooperative venture for sure mm-hmm. Do you see any challenges uh, right now that could be easily fixed or addressed that um, that no one's really taken care of yet? I don't. I don't see anything that hasn't been addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not which technology advances the fastest and is you know, able to be uh, made operational, I think. Certainly, the radiation thing is one of the biggest concerns for deep space travel, and so any of those technologies uh, would be uh, crucial. I think the power systems are being addressed very well uh, with uh, not only the kilowatt nuclear systems, but all the batteries and solar powers and fuel cells. I think that area is pretty well advanced. Mm-hmm. I think the navigation thing is pretty well taken care of. Uh, the life support systems, certainly they they um, have huge efforts in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've solved, I think, the, the suit problem. I think they've addressed even they've even addressed uh, the sharpness of the uh, lunar regolith problem in uh, mm-hmm. static electricity and that kind of thing. There's 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 just so many different advances that uh, you know I can't think of one that hasn't been ad- been addressed. And certainly, the life support thing is is the crucial one. But uh, 
you got to have all these other things in order to do the the former. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it relates to the Mars thing, only because of NASA's. A, well, here's a good policy one for you: the NASA's policy for for pushing the conjunction class long stay mission is one I would certainly disagree with, and I've been pushing the uh, the other six. Uh, or so ways to go to Mars without having to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's a big policy one, but not an Artemis policy one. Okay. Have you written about that in other books that people could look up? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote one book on the, uh, a mission to uh, Phobos and Demos first mm-hmm. as, a, as the easiest way to uh, really do a Mars mission. There's, there's I started one uh, that I proposed to Springer this year, or, earlier this year, but they thought there's just too many Mars books out there right now, and it's so far out in advance that, you know, maybe maybe next year. Mm-hmm. But I proposed, like, uh, several different ways to go to Mars first, the precursor missions, I call them, mm-hmm. that uh, that don't uh, risk the crews, uh, you know, require them to stay on the surface for a year and a half before they can get a ride home. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a bad policy. Yeah. How do you see uh, the interplay with um, the big commercial ventures? Um, the, the interplay with the Artemis program is there? I, I don't know what it is specifically. So, well, there there are some that are pretty far out kinds of things, like you know, mining, for example, um, that I um, try to be commercial, but it's just too far out. Uh, uh, there's been uh, there's another commercial view on uh, one of my favorite ideas is uh, uh, Martian Mars caves and lunar caves to protect against radiation. And there's a couple commercial businesses that are involved with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I covered that slightly in my uh, my Martian book, which was called, uh, you know, uh, From Cave Man to Cave Martian. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a another one the commercialization aspects uh that really can make money i think are pretty far out i think they're a decade out or maybe two mm-hmm. um, I, I just don't see uh that happening in the near you know within a generation so mm-hmm. and how about um the involvement of uh boeing uh spacex and um blue origin in artemis is there yeah well, you know, NASA can't do do without them. They're mm-hmm. just uh, they're they're so essential. Mm-hmm. NASA desperately needs all of them. Mm-hmm. On the, the commercial spacecraft, uh, well, hopefully we'll see a launch this this month mm-hmm. from SpaceX, Crew Dragon. The payloads, uh, they're all essential. The science community is depending on them. I think uh, what uh, what NASA is doing there, is from a contracting standpoint, is great. I mean, um, they've got to do do that. Uh, there are some companies that seem to be, you know, just a, uh, just small pieces of the program, but that's all right. Mm-hmm. And then there's the main ones that you mentioned that are having the big launch vehicle and big payloads and systems. But there are many others. There's probably there's probably fifty to hundred other companies involved in Artemis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and each of them, you know, some of these contracts are quite small. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, just a few few millions here and there. But uh, uh, a good example of uh, 
I, I met uh, Red uh, Whitaker from uh, Carnegie. Uh, he's building the uh, on the Landers. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys like that are, you know, they're just uh, geniuses. Uh, I mean, advancements in robotics, it's just unreal. They're just something to see. Uh, and when I think of uh, a crew on the surface looking for, let's say, an overhang or a cave or a lava tube or whatever, mm-hmm. you've got to have the robots to send in there to explore things first to be sure they're, they're safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to have robots uh, go look for wherever the payload landed that you can't see, you know, landed long or short. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of uh, cooperative human robotic capabilities is, is just uh, hard to believe. I mean, we're just not going to be able to go anywhere without uh, cooperative robotics. Mm-hmm. Are there any leaders right now in, in robotics, any companies? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, uh, the, uh, the group that I just mentioned uh, from Carnegie Mellon Astrobiotics mm-hmm. is certainly a, a leader. Uh, the groups that are making uh, other payloads, they're certainly uh, quite advanced in some areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned the uh, boron nitrate nanotubes. There's a new, brand new company down at Hampton next to Langley. Mm-hmm. That's just uh, been working in that field for a couple of years. That's all new. Mm-hmm. There's just, uh, but of course, they, you know, the Europeans are, are doing the same same thing. They've got their own groups of trying to uh, make advances in these systems. Mm-hmm. I get a kick out of the, uh, the Kennedy group that's, that got what they call the swamp works. Mm-hmm. These are robots that process uh, regolith. That's, uh, that's neat to see. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's uh, these these companies are just uh, they come out of the woodwork almost to to support other bigger companies. They're they're all little subs to somebody else like Lockheed or Northern Grumman, mm-hmm. but uh, they're essential. Yeah, the, the science fiction side of me when when you mention a robot that that processes regolith, I just imagined a, a robot, that, a man eating robot, you know, like. It, <laughs> It can't tell the difference between the uh, regolith and, and the people handling it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the one that they got down, you know, have to you know, check out Swampworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just a giant machine that just gobbles up the regolith and dumps it into you know big processors. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, which which gets you into this thing called three D printing, which is another thing that people think is real simple, mm-hmm. but it's not. Uh, it's simple on Earth, and we've got all kinds of neat things going on with that, everything to build rocket nozzles or whatever. But when you get to the moon, you got to process regolith for other reasons. Some some concepts sort of show you building your own little cave out of it, hmm. you know, like a big dome. Mm-hmm. But the uh, 3D printing thing is not as simple as you can. It happens here on Earth because you've, you've got so many other energy-related things like uh, this uh, uh, burning things together to form a solid kind of a thing. This centering is called, uh, mm-hmm. thermal centering. Uh, that's not so easy to do without a lot of power. And, and so uh, you can get your power on Earth, but uh, 
you got to deal with the four or five different power systems that you have on the moon. Mm-hmm. And then it takes some of this uh, other material that uh, merges the materials together that uh, makes it a makes it a solid. That's we got to bring that from Earth probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not going to be quite so easy. Get a chapter on that. I'm speaking with Manfred von Ehrenfried, author of the Artemis Lunar Program. You can find more information at dutch-von-ehrenfried.com. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing the popularity of my podcast, and I'm grateful for any support you can give me. Please sign up for my newsletter at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Please post your comments and questions about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Spacewalks Money Talks or on YouTube at Spacewalks Money Talks. You can contact me directly on Twitter at SpacewalksMT and on Instagram at Spacewalks Money Talks. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. One of the issues I always wonder about when you mix um, government and, and private companies, and obviously an issue that's existed for a while, are, are there any differences in standards as far as quality assurance or um, safety standards? Um between the two? Well, there's probably a lot of difference because NASA can, you know, over-QA things. Hmm. When I was a pressure test subject, uh, before I would get into a chamber, I must have had 20 different people monitoring uh, how I was getting ready and suited up and so forth. Everything from doctors to QA guys from one company, a QA guy from another company, and blah, 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 uh, and monitors outside the chambers and so forth. Well, uh, you know, industry can do that too, but you don't have to have, you know, three or four QA guys, uh, everybody signing the the books and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think they probably have certainly streamlined QA. And uh, I think there's it's, it's almost like deregulation today in other areas. You know, after a while, you you kind of think, well, we I think we've overregulated this or mm-hmm. overqa'd that. Yeah. So as far as the Artemis program or even any other space program, um, are there any issues in space exploration that people aren't talking about that uh, that you think they should be discussing? You know, let's say you were you were NASA administrator for a day. You know, head of NASA for a day. What would you Want to focus on that they're not. Well, one of the one of the uh, conflicts that will always be there that maybe people don't hear too much about is this uh, this bit about uh, you know, protecting the Earth from the Moon and protecting the Moon from the Earth and and so you know that's been going on for now for sixty years. Uh, it's sort of in the background, um, but uh, there are some people who just refuse to except the fact that we're going to go to Mars and the moon and we're going to just, uh, you know, put viruses everywhere mm-hmm. and, uh, or we're going to all die. That's why, we, you know, we quarantined the Apollo guys for a while until we realized that it was a 
was overkill. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that issue will go on, and it's sort of like uh, not talked about all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and another area that uh, is always talked about, but uh, it's kind of hard to balance, is the risk versus gain thing, where you know uh, how much protection do we give uh, the crew? Well, it turns out that we give we go overboard. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, we've killed some people because of we were approaching things in the right way. But that that will always be a big, a big concern, and there will always be people on both sides of that argument. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you're a person who's excited about space. You've you know you've worked with it for a while, but right now, at this point, what what are you most excited about? Well. <laughs> My problem is uh, is that my my uh, horizon line doesn't match my uh, lifeline. <laughs> yeah. So so I'm 84. So I I can kind of say, well, yeah, I would have loved to worked on Mars. I would have loved to even today write uh, I have some work that that's related to Mars, but I know I'll never see it. I, I'm not even sure if I'll see the, the human lunar landing. Hmm. You know. So. Uh, and most of my contemporaries are in that same boat, you know. Mm-hmm. All, all the all the moonwalkers are dying off, and even the flight controllers of the Apollo era are dying off. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're still excited about space, but uh, uh, we don't get the chance to work on projects as much as we'd like to, even even in these years. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that the the space program itself has developed. Um like medicine-wise, they develop technologies that I think has helped people now today, you know, extend and improve their lives. Oh, definitely, definitely. definitely. People don't realize the spinoffs from NASA. I mean, there's something, I don't know, maybe 100,000 different spinoffs from space program over the last, you know, half century. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't see it. I mean, they might think about cell phones and chips and stuff like that. There's so much more spinoff uh, from NASA than than um, the average person would ever know. Mm-hmm. So stepping back in time a little bit, when you first started working on the space program, um, compared to what you see now, um, what? So two things. What are you surprised we're doing now? What, back then, what would you have been surprised to hear about that's going on now? And two, what? What are you most disappointed about that you thought would happen at, by this time? Well, uh, in '69, uh, I applied for the astronaut thing, but uh, and I thought, well, you know, the space station was right around the corner, mm-hmm. uh, and it turns out it wasn't. And so the time constants are uh, are slipping. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I still see brilliance in in young people. But I see stupidity in them as, as well, which mm-hmm. I don't think I saw that in uh, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's because of the internet and the TVs that you, you <laughs> see and hear stupid people. Yeah, <laughs> they have a bigger voice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, there are still brilliant young young people, and uh, certainly uh, uh, guys like uh, Musk and and then has, have hired them 
and uh, they're they're working their little hearts out just like we do. Mm-hmm. I think what you see in in management is that uh, people are more risk averse now. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we were not risk averse enough when <laughs> you know when I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always thought that you know space is dangerous as hell that we're bound to kill somebody, mm-hmm. which we eventually did. Mm-hmm. But even even back in Mercury, we just amazed it, you know, because I saw things blow up all the time when I was in my 20s, mm. you know, it was, just seemed like that was a natural process, but now, uh, now we, well, just like this virus thing going on now, you know, there are people that would shut down the whole world just just to be sure that we didn't kill somebody the next day, mm-hmm. you know, we just get too risk adverse. Mm-hmm. They don't. It doesn't balance out with, with other risks. Mm-hmm. But you know, the Russians have lost some. We've lost some, um, and they were all uh, mostly things that uh, maybe could have been caught along the way. Mm-hmm. In, in typical failure mode analysis, it takes about seven different things to fail before you get a catastrophic one. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe we would have we could have seen that. So as far as, so is there something now uh, that we're doing that you're surprised that we achieved at this point? Or have, have we just been slow on everything over the past 50 years? Well, the, the, the robotics world, the you know, the JPL world is, I think, has moved along smartly. I mean, it's just amazing uh, what, what they've done with robots mm-hmm. uh, and, and the sophistication of uh but the reentry and landing systems, as well as the uh, the, the sensors mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, the long-range control of the robot robots from millions of miles away, I think I think that's fascinating. And and uh, now we've been what uh, I started working on the, the headquarters uh, of the contract. I worked on uh, the original space station task force. So that's 1962. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't get there for you know almost 20 years later uh, it was uh, uh, before we had humans on the space station I forgot what year that was mm. but uh, so the, the time constants are extremely long look how long it's taken for us to, to build a, an SLS Jeez. Mm-hmm. I mean you know we, we built a Saturn V in what six years or something like that mm. And we, we don't have a, the same capability even today. And they've been they've been um, playing with the SLS. Well, it started off as what Aries or something, and then converted. So I don't know why that takes so long. Were you um when you saw the uh, I forget the name of 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 it, but when the two um first stage, um, the two first stage rockets returned, you know, and, and landed in tandem. Yep. That's fascinating. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Uh, the amount of, well, without a GPS system, they say they couldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of like a uh, another system that supports this system. So, and then plus the precision of the uh, of the controls. Um, I don't think we've had that kind of uh, control, three dimensional control plus uh, you know downrange control and all that. That's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was amazed at that for sure. Okay, so that Still one surprised am. you. <laughs> oh yeah. Did you expect them to, when you when you saw them trying it? Did you expect failure? Or did you 
just hold your breath? Or? <laughs> well, you know, like I say, I've seen enough things fail. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> we used to go down to Cocoa Beach and with binoculars and just wait for an explosion <laughs> just hmm. to see it. <laughs> wow. What was the most spectacular explosion you saw? Hopefully no human injury. No, no human. I think it was a, I think it was an Atlas, uh, Ra- I think it was a Ranger. It had to be like 62 or 3. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was actually had binoculars on it at, at liftoff. And um, it went up, uh, you know, 20, 30 seconds or so. And when it exploded, not only was it a gigantic fireball, but you could see the engines fall, the heavy parts fall, and the uh, aluminum became shrapnel that was like falling leaves. Mm. And it would take maybe a half an hour before all of the all of the pieces actually fell to earth because the the heat kept them rising a little bit and then they would fall and they rise some more. And it was just like like watching a tree shed its leaves. Wow. You know, that was spectacular. And that was Cocoa Beach area, you said? Yeah, yeah, like Cape Canaveral. Right. You know, sometimes, depending on where, the, our Mercury Control Center was only a few miles from the launch pad, pad 14. And uh, uh, when we weren't launching and somebody else was launching, we'd be, you know, at our Cocoa Beach you know, hotel beaches and watching. I can imagine the Soviets had their fair amount of um, explosive oh, incidents. They, that t- Oh, yeah. They burned people alive on the pad. Mm. Yeah, so, what, there was one general that uh, was so uh, enamored by this. I think, I think it was one of their big ones, like the N1 or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it blew, there were a lot of people sitting in chairs not, not too far away. I mean, you know, like maybe a football field or two away, mm-hmm. and they they were some of them were burned alive. Wow, is that that didn't come out for decades? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm in sure. In fact, that... I think you can see I think you can see a video of that on YouTube somewhere. Oh really? It finally came out. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Do Do you have any book about your um your time in those early programs? Have you written about that? Well, the uh, birth of NASA is uh, was uh, the one that uh, I did most of the work on the space task group. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, covered from Sputnik on, uh, and so that that one covered uh, just about everybody who worked on the space task group for Mercury. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was interesting about that was the Eisenhower groups that were responding to Sputnik and how that. Uh, then got over to uh, who was going to be in Project Mercury. There were things about that that I had no idea that was happening uh, in the in the people that were that were involved. And that was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Let alone the, uh, the starting up Mercury, mm-hmm. uh, which was also fascinating for a young man. I was like twenty five, mm-hmm. but uh, the. Uh, the things that you would see in early, let's say, in the first months after Sputnik and how the scramble for that, that was kind of neat. Mm. And, and who were the players of that? Mm-hmm. Is it, uh, have you seen any of the old um, hardware 
um, in the Air and Space Museums in the D.C. area? Have you gone and seen yeah. those? Uh, well, I, uh, I worked in D.C. for 25 years. In fact, I was oh. across the street, the Capitol Gallery, across from the Air and Space Museum, and we used to go in there for lunch times and wander around. Is it at all strange, or was it strange to see this stuff you worked on now in a museum? Uh, I was up at the on the Dallas museums last year mm-hmm. on the Apollo 7 spacecraft there and I worked on Apollo 7 for two years and yeah so I wound up me giving, giving a briefing of what what was that hmm. okay yeah it's kind of neat you know it's uh, it's uh, it's kind of neat for me to even look at old even older stuff hmm. yeah yeah the stuff that predated you predated your work well, yeah, there was stuff that I was a child when when it happened, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I go to, I don't know if you've ever been to Space Fest, but it was canceled this year. But that's, that's a place you really enjoy. What's that called again? Space Fest, F-E-S-T. Oh, okay. It's where uh, all the astronauts and flight controllers and come and give talks. And then uh, thousands of people come for the, all the briefings and the storytelling and the in the movies and so forth. And where is that held normally? That's in Tucson. Tucson, okay. Yeah, go to spacefest.info. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've canceled this year. They were going to have it in July, but they decided to push it off. Yeah. Can you ever imagine, you know, the size of the space budget as it was um, for the Apollo program, can you ever imagine uh, that percentage of, of the country's GDP uh, devoted to space again? <laughs> Like, what would it take? Yeah. Okay. I think we got more money in masks now than we do in space. <laughs> you know, well, we have a half of 1% and we had 4%. So it's eight times larger mm-hmm. in Apollo. Yeah. But what would and it... the entire, entire United States suddenly within a year or so was, it, was uh, built. You know, I was involved with building the control center in Houston. Mm-hmm. And how fast that was, and then I looked at other things that are, were built at the same time. You know, there there were not even all the NASA centers at the time. Mm-hmm. I think there were only four. And suddenly, you know, and, and look at what happened at Marshall, from from the White Sands test and from the Von Braun's group mm-hmm. uh, to to building a Saturn V, mm-hmm. and we can't even build a, a Saturn V in F one engine now. So they're all hand built, and you know, it's just amazing what we can't do, right? As well as what we can. Did you ever meet Von Braun? I forget what years he. Yeah, I briefed him on Apollo Seven. I uh, actually saw him in the in the fifties when I was in college. He gave a briefing, and I went went to. Uh, but it was uh, years later that I briefed him on Apollo Seven flight operations, and I went over to him and told him that, you know. Uh, I saw you in 1959, and you inspired me, and here I am, giving you a briefing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so much has been written about him. What was your personal takeaway, like, from meeting him? What what impression did you get? Well, he, he was, uh, he was uh, his presence in a room was, was, was staggering. Uh, he was omnipresent, almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, only because of his reputation, maybe. Uh, but when he spoke, he spoke with a very high, girly kind of tone. Mm-hmm. You know, if you listen to him on YouTube, you'll see what I mean. Uh, uh, 
but he was so well respected uh, uh, that even even then, even a half a century ago, uh, he was he was something to behold. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Chris Kraft, my boss, uh, uh, he didn't like him too much. Uh, he thought he was an arrogant ass, <laughs> which he probably was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, th- those were, in fact, two, two different, entirely different people uh, uh, who were at the same levels, but uh, opposite ends of the personality spectrum, mm-hmm. and, and sort of clashed a little bit. But uh, yeah, I got some stories to tell about those guys for sure. <laughs> what? Uh, who are some of the people then and now? Um, who really pushed space programs who maybe people don't aren't aware of the, the, the importance of their efforts or is it, is it has history covered them all properly? Well, I was amazed when I wrote the, um, the birth of NASA book, I was amazed the role that Jimmy Doolittle had in 1958, hmm. nine. Uh, most people don't realize that he was a head of NACA at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they think of him still as a B twenty five kind of a pilot, mm-hmm. but he was later a big administrator, and he was the one who gave the big speech to uh, Congress as to why NASA should be, or whatever this organization was going to be, should be a, a civilian one. Mm-hmm. And here he is, a military man. Uh, you'll have to read his. Uh, Congressional testimony sometime. It's brilliant. So he, he was a surprise to me. There were people who were, were, let's say, NASA administrators that were very quiet research types, like the Langley Research Center, which was, you know, typically a, an aeronautical, classical research center. Mm-hmm. But the guy who, who then took over for that, like Bob Gilruth, also a quiet, speaking guy became a dominant force that really moved to uh, you know the manned spacecraft center operation and of course mercury and, and therefore the new manned spacecraft center mm-hmm. um, he, he was something now on the other hand you take a guy that led ames research center uh he was a much more uh, uh, outgoing pusher type mm-hmm. but george lowe was my boss for Apollo for a while. Mm-hmm. Another quiet, quiet speaking guy. Very powerful when it comes to uh, administration and management. So yeah, I, I wrote about some of these things in the birth of NASA. But I, I definitely, you know, as a young man, I was I was uh, surprised then. But you know, fifty years later, when I was writing about it, I was <laughs> surprised in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it's strange looking back uh, around the Apollo, you know, plus and minus years, it seemed that the space program was an imperative for the U.S., whereas now, as excited as people are, it seems to be more a, wouldn't it be cool to do this kind of thing? You know, I don't see... Well, yeah, people don't realize uh, the space race impact was pretty powerful. I mean, when, when Sputnik was launched and people could see see it in orbit actually they weren't seeing sputnik they were seeing the upper stage hmm. uh it was frightful that that could be a, a nuclear weapon heading our way mm-hmm. and so the intensity of of the space race and its impact on the space program was uh 
much more powerful and direct, whereas now it's, uh, oh yeah, let's see, uh, you know, look at even Apollo oh, 15, 16, people weren't even watching it on television. It was Oham in later Apollo. Now it's, uh, I doubt if anybody, anybody on the street could name an astronaut. Hmm. You know, hmm. they're just not, they were heroes then, but they're, oh yeah, there's how many people are out there now? I don't know. There must be a couple. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Go home. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Do you think, do you think China, will China always be, will they be a U.S. competitor in space or do you see, how much cooperation do you see in the future? Well, there's a law against it right now. Uh, um, they would definitely be a competitor. They're, they're, they have a manned program. They're, they're building a space station. Uh, they've already landed on the backside of the moon. They've got rovers. Uh, they're definitely a competitor. And I don't, I don't think, especially now with the, the virus thing, uh, they're, they're more of an enemy now than, than they were two months ago. Um, their, their role in the South China Sea and all that other stuff. Uh, I think they're definitely going to be a long-term competitor. It'll, it'll be uh, the modern space race, but mm-hmm. it won't be. They'll be communist, but they they will be a different uh, country. Do you think China could do something that would be a Sputnik moment for the U.S.? Could you, could you imagine them doing something that would just trigger everyone's uh, defense well, response? You know, even when they landed on the far side, it was ho oh hum. Right. I don't think they can do anything. Uh, we're, we're not we're not uh, we're not attuned to that anymore. We're not we're not surprised anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the uh, the mystical aura is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even the Mars stuff is. Uh, you know we're launching again in July to put another robot there. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like uh, it's kind of neat. And in fact, I've got I've got. One of those certificates that says my name is on the on the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Did you get one of those? They've actually, you know, laser inscribed names of people. Mm-hmm. It's just there's nothing that I uh, an atomic bomb blast an attack would surprise us, but that's <laughs> nothing in space that I can think of. Well, I recall the. Um, do you remember that um, sort of cigar shaped? Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, I can't body. pronounce the name of it. <laughs> yeah, that, that came past, and even a Harvard researcher said that there are signs that that might be, you know, could possibly be produced by life or something about yeah. it. And that was a whole, <laughs> even that, people were like, wow, yeah. for a second. <laughs> yeah, 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 that is so far out. People don't realize how big the universe is, they have no idea mm-hmm. of, the, of the limitations of the speed of light, and, and, uh, uh, who, who was it that came up with the equation uh, for Sethi? Uh, 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 oh, I forgot his name. Uh, yeah, I don't recall. Uh, the probability of life. It, it's so remote that it's just, uh, you know, just my science background tells me that uh, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. Not that they're not out there. You know, from a theologian standpoint, I could say, well, let's see. God says, okay, well, I'm going to use the earth here. To, we're going to put people on the earth. And I think I'm going to go 2,000 light years away and put another group of, of humans or whatever we call these people 
over there. Now I'm going to just see how those species <laughs> react. <laughs> I think I think he could play games like that. <laughs> <laughs> Keep us pretty distant apart. Two thousand. Yeah, yeah. Years. Well, you don't want to ever. Did you ever see the movie um, "The Day the Earth Stood Still" in nineteen fifty one? No. You'll have to get that one on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite movie as far as aliens coming. Oh yeah. This was the the robot Gort. Mm -hmm. It was an eight foot robot. Right. And uh, Michael Rini was the star. That's a classic. 1950s sci-fi movie, but it shows the the reaction of humans to outer space uh, people, mm -hmm. individuals. Yeah, great I, movie. I have to check that one out. It's on yeah, my list. It's, yeah, it's worth seeing. <laughs> yeah, are you on the web at all? Can people find you on social oh, media or anything? The website was in my email to you, I think. Okay, let me just uh, look it up for uh, uh, listeners. Yeah, it's a Dutch. Dash von dash Aaron Fried at uh, dot com. Uh, I'll, spe uh, I'll spell that for people. Uh, D U T C H dash H dash V O N dash E H R E N F R I E D dot com. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, That's my website. Yeah. Yep. And that shows all the books and, and such that you've worked on yeah. and written. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so thank you for speaking with me. Anytime, and all the best to you. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Spacewalks Money Talks. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more fascinating information at SpacewalksMoneyTalks.com, on YouTube under Spacewalks Money Talks, on Facebook under Spacewalks Money Talks, on Instagram under Spacewalks Money Talks, and on Twitter at SpacewalksMT. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you for listening.